0: The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. time welcome to the show everybody welcome to night fright get in your most comfy chair get the coffee going get the tea going or a beverage of choice have we got a great ride for you tonight the film is called a coup in Camelot it's an award-winning documentary that details the assassination of President John F Kennedy now it's available to be got at iTunes, Amazon Video Direct, Google Play, and Vimeo On Demand. Five decades ago, it's five decades already, folks, November 22nd, 1963, President Kennedy's assassination, of course. Crucial questions remain. The documentary Aku and Camelot provides extensive evidence of botched Secret Service protocols, Zapruder film analysis with 6K digital scans. It's immaculate. Shocking medical evidence revelations and expert Oswald analysis. All to uncover the dramatic tale of the JFK assassination and what we were told by the government then and what we now know today. The researchers featured in the documentary are author Sherry Feaster, forensics expert using crime scene techniques that were not available in 1963, She has found a frontal shot. She has used science to find and prove a frontal shot, and we know what that means. It means that the Warren Commission's lone nut assassin shooting from behind President Kennedy has now been exploded. That myth is over. Science now proves two shooters. By definition, a conspiracy. That's right, that's what you're going to find in a cooing Camelot. Barry Ernest, also an Oswald expert. Dr. David Mantic, radiologist. Doug Horn, assassination records review board expert. Both those folks were on several weeks ago. You can find that show in the www.nightfrightshow.com archives. And absolutely explosive stuff they both brought to the show. You're going to want to check that out for sure. Author Vince Palomaro, Secret Service expert. Jerry Dealey, Dealey Plaza specialist. Also, both of those folks were on last week. Check that show out, www.nightfrightshow as well. You're going to find out all the things the Secret Service were supposed to do and yet neglected not to. Also, you're going to find a lot out about Dealey Plaza from Jerry Dealey, yeah, the name is the same, and the Texas School Book Depository. And was it possible for Oswald to make it down all those sets of stairs in the time allotted? Listen to the show, folks. Get the documentary A Cooing Camelot. Also, our special guest this evening, I'm very happy and proud to have Dick Russell on the show tonight. He's an Oswald expert, and his book, The Man Who Knew Too Much, well, it's simply a legend in the community, isn't it, that book? It's kind of on par with David Lifton's um, best evidence for the amount of people that have read it. A little bit of bio before we get going with Dick. Dick Russell is the author of 12 books, including three on the assassination of President Kennedy and several bestsellers with Jesse Ventura. You can find Jesse's show in the archives, W. dot com. And by the way, Dick, Jesse spoke glowingly of you. Absolutely glowingly. But he wants his uh He wants the thing he lent you. He told me to tell you back, whatever that is. I don't know if it's a lawnmower or the million dollars or whatever it is. (laughs) His his (laughs) King book, The Man Who Knew Too Much, is considered a classic, as I said before, in the JFK assassination literature. Dick Russell is also the winner of the Chevron Conservation Award. Welcome to the show, Dick. Thanks for coming back after all these years. 2008 was the last time you were on, by the way.
1: Oh, was it really? Well, time's really flying. Thank you, Brent. Good to be with
0: you. It's unbelievable. Okay, let's talk a little bit about your role in A Coup in Camelot. How did this come about for you?
1: You know, it was uh, the 50th anniversary year, 2013. And actually, A Coup in Camelot was, was one of several shows that I was on that year talking about. Uh, what really happened on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, as far as I've been able to piece it together as a journalist, and um, so they interviewed me, um, Art Van Kampen and and his his crew uh, one day, and um, I, they they wanted to know a lot of things about Oswald, whom I'd studied uh, pretty intensively for a number of years. Actually, I spent seventeen years uh, researching the man who knew too much, not full time, but off and on, and uh, so it was. Uh, an obsession, a labor of love. Um, uh, I finally put the book out in 1992, and I was uh, pleased to be part of Aku and Camelot. I think it's a really outstanding documentary.
0: Now, you're role in it. You talk about Oswald quite a bit. I was wondering if we can go in that direction first. And most definitely, I would like to get to Richard case Nagal if that's okay with you. But sure. let's start out with Aku and Camelot. You talk about Oswald, as I said, quite a bit. What are the revelations that you bring?
1: My research shows that he is really uh, as much of an enigma in many ways today as, as he was then. Certainly someone who had intelligence connections uh, to the CIA, uh, to the FBI, uh, perhaps to the Cuban intelligence uh, people as well, and had lived you know, for two and a half years in the Soviet Union after he supposedly defected from the Marine Corps from Atsugi Naval Air Base in, uh, in Japan. Actually, he didn't go right from there, but he came back to the U.S. first. Yeah. But uh, spent two and a half years in the Soviet Union, and then um, certainly had connections with with Cubans. Uh, went to the Cuban embassy, either he or someone impersonating him, uh, in Mexico City in September of '63. And um, you know, Oswald was uh, used by a lot of people. Also, he was young. Uh, what his real ideology was is difficult to say to this day. He came across as a Trotskyite uh, leftist, uh, but uh, as I say, he had strong connections to the CIA, to the FBI. We can get into more of that. And um, I think he was, beyond a doubt, uh, the patsy on uh, November 22, 1963, that he was set up by a, a small cabal of people, maybe not so small, I don't know, uh, to take the fall for uh, President Kennedy's assassination. And then, of course, he uh, He had to be silenced a couple of days later by Jack Ruby. So, um, you know, he's a a mysterious figure, and uh, we can talk quite a bit more about him and, and his connections with other people that I researched, if you'd like.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you brought up Jack Ruby, and that was where I wanted to go next, actually. And I just want to read this quote by Jack Ruby. Now, folks, Jack Ruby, for the younger folk that do not know, Jack Ruby was the assassin of Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, what's the first rule in assassination? kill the assassin. Three days after JFK was killed, on November 24th, JFK was killed on the 22nd, Oswald was being ushered out of a supposedly secured police station with 70 police officers around him, there was press there. He was gonna be taken to a more secure facility. Everybody thought he was safe until Jack Ruby stepped forward and put a single bullet into Lee Harvey Oswald killing him, not on the spot, but later on. He died in succumbed from his wounds. So we don't know what Oswald knew. He never said anything. Jack Ruby, of course, was taken to jail. And this is one of the quotes that Jack Ruby said when he was being interviewed. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred. My own true motive. I'm the only person in the background that knows the truth. The people that put me in this position will never let the true facts come above board to the world. Jack Ruby. What's your take on that, Dick?
1: Oh, I think uh, Jack Ruby, I believe, in that same conversation with the Warren Commission, asked to be taken to Washington, where he said he would be able to uh, reveal more than he could there in Dallas. Um, Ruby, you know, he was a Dallas nightclub owner. He was very well connected to the, the local police, to the media in town, and to the mafia. Uh, he was he was close to uh, the, the head of the Dallas mafia and uh, and had certainly had connections with and phone calls with, as we now know, Carlos Marcello. I think that Ruby was not part of the original conspiracy necessarily, but was brought in uh, by the powers that killed President Kennedy in order to, make sure that oswald never did talk about his connection so whether ruby owed somebody uh big time uh, why he did this exactly we'll probably never know uh he was perhaps dying at the time of cancer he died of, of cancer when he was in jail and uh, I think uh, that Ruby was sent in by the mob, but that the mob, per se, did not assassinate President Kennedy.
0: What then was the mob's role? Because we've got Jim Braden, as I mentioned last week when Jerry Deely was, uh, was here with Vince. I mentioned last week the story about Jim Braden. Very quickly, folks, he was a known mafioso. He was arrested and questioned seconds after the assassination took place, was released. He had mafioso connections. He was arrested. Just outside the Dell Tex building where he was lurking inside that particular building. That particular building was right beside the Texas School Book Depository building where many people felt the shots had emanated from. What is, in your opinion, the role of the mob in all of this? Are they just the money people, the bag people, or was there more to it than that?
1: Well, certainly we now know and didn't at the time, but not until the mid-1970s, that the mob was very involved with the CIA. In plots to assassinate Castro, uh, they had had to leave Cuba uh, when uh, their casinos and much else were nationalized when Fidel Castro took power in 1959. They hated Castro. There were a lot of anti-Castro Cuban exiles that they were close to and working with uh, in illicit, you know, drug trafficking and, and whatever. And uh, so, I, you know, the mob has a, had a history with the CIA, close ties with the CIA, going all the way back actually to World War II and, and Lucky Luciano. But in this case, I. The mob, however, a lot of people think that the mob killed Kennedy, you know, and Marcello did it, and and you have a lot of people that certainly were knowledgeable about it, Johnny Roselli and Sam Giancana and others who ended up very dead uh, when the investigations were going on in the 1970s. Uh, But the mob didn't have the wherewithal to, to cover up this assassination like it was covered up. I mean, they just didn't have that kind of power. And there was a huge cover-up, as, as your, your viewers know, from uh, the fact that the autopsy uh, results were altered and the Zapruder film shows there was another shooter and that was altered. But at any rate, um, I think the mob's role, uh, and that, this would bring Ruby into it too, was to um, uh, basically you know, make, make sure they, they certainly were cognizant that Kennedy was going to be killed. Uh, they may have hired uh, some of the shooters, or one or one or two of the shooters. Perhaps the connection uh, all the way to the French uh, mafia in Marseille, but um, they didn't they didn't pull the strings. They were the ones that sent Jack Ruby in because they already had connections with him, and perhaps he owed them something, and so uh, he was their guy.
0: Dick Russell's our guest tonight, folks, and you're gonna recognize that name for sure if you're attached to the community at all, or. If you've read many books on the assassination, his book, of course, is The Man Who Knew Too Much. It's the story of Richard Case and the Gal, which we're going to be getting into in just a few minutes. www.nightfrightshow.com. You can click on his book cover that's going to be there. You can order his book from the books from the comfort of your own home. There will be a bunch there. And also, there'll be a link there that'll take you right to a spot where you can download and get um, the documentary, A Coup in Camelot. Something else I wanted to talk to you about, Dick, is the memo from Nicholas Katzenbach. And this is an important memo. It was made November 25th, which was the Monday, folks. It was only a few days after the 22nd, on the Friday. And it starts off, Memorandum for Mr. Moyers, which is Bill Moyers, the same guy that's on PBS, by the way, folks. And he was uh, one of the folks that was very close to Lyndon Johnson, the new president. And There are several uh, bullet points, but the main bullet point I want to read out and want to discuss with Dick is the public must be satisfied that Oswald was the assassin, that he did not have Confederates who are still at large, and that the evidence was such that he would have been convicted at a trial. Now, the important line there is, folks that he did not have Confederates. In other words, he was a lone nut assassin. Again, Dick, what's your take on this particular memorandum?
1: Well, I think right from the get-go, uh, people at high levels of this government who are not involved in a conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy, but definitely wanted to put a lid on this, because my hypothesis is, uh, based on a lot, many years of research, is that um, Oswald, as we know, had ties to the Russians and to the Cubans, that there was an an effort being made by the the plotters to um, ensure that Oswald was was picked up, was uh, shown to be the killer, and that the finger would point back to Cuba and perhaps even to the Soviet Union, and that would spark an invasion of Cuba, uh, which is what uh, some of the people wanted, the mafia, the elements of the CIA, the Cuban exile community, and uh, basically get rid of Castro after uh, claiming that he killed President Kennedy. So it was made to look that way, and I think it was made to look that way uh, officially as well, that, that people, in other words, Earl Warren, for example, who was an honorable man, uh, leading the Warren Commission, um, he's not going to mount a conscious cover-up unless there's a, a really good reason for it. And and I think that a lot of people were told, perhaps Johnson among them, uh, that uh, you know there was a big conspiracy here and uh, it involved the Cubans and the Russians. And if the truth came out about this, even though it wasn't the truth, uh, we would uh, be forced into a, a confrontation, a potential World War III situation, and nobody wanted to risk that. So that's where I think the cover-up emanated from, although I'm sure you had people on the Warren Commission, like Alan Dulles, who had very different reasons uh, for covering up.
0: I agree with you completely, and let's not forget, folks, we've got to put this into the context of the era. We were just a little over a gear from the Cuban Missile Crisis, where we were that close to not being here. And uh, so when somebody tells you we're concerned that the Russians were involved, and there's a possibility for another nuclear standoff, or perhaps even worse, it would emanate into uh, World War III. You kind of take national security into account for that, and we know that O'Donnell and Dave Powers both lied about what they saw in the follow-up car in Dealey Plaza that day. They both saw the shots coming from the grass. you know, only were both asked to squash that down. There's no breach of national security, so it looks like everything was being manipulated around that.
1: Dick, was Johnson involved at all, in your opinion? You know, I I've heard different things on that. Uh, certainly, his his mistress, Madeline Brown, who I talked to way back in the, in the early '90s, uh, believed that he had foreknowledge. Um, he was in the motorcade. He seemed terrified. Um, you know, that a lot of people think he was, but. But I have never seen enough to convince me that, uh, that Johnson himself would have directly participated in in what was basically a coup to overthrow uh, President Kennedy.
0: The people surrounding him, was there anybody in the inner circle you think might have been cognizant of the, uh, and just inhaled it back from Johnson until it was too late?
1: It's possible um, that there were people who, who might have done that. Um, but I, I wouldn't want to speculate on on who inside the cabinet itself that would have been.
0: Okay, you had mentioned the anti-Castro Cubans, the exiles, uh, primarily out of Florida. Can we go there now? Can we talk a little bit uh, about the man who knew too much? And can you give an overview of Richard Case Nagal, and then
1: we'll get into it? Sure. Um, he's a very complicated. He, he, he's a very complicated figure as well. He's not somebody I just researched. I knew him. Um, Uh, that's a story we can get into perhaps i knocked on his door in 1975 when he was living in manhattan beach california and he with reluctance uh let me in i'd been led to him uh, by uh, professor richard popkin who wrote a great book back in the 60s called the second oswald and in 1975 he was basically announcing to the world that whichever journalist would show up that he had solved the kennedy assassination so A number of journalists made their way to his door, including myself. I didn't know that much about the assassination at the time. I was uh, living in New York and writing for the Village Voice, among others, freelancing. The Voice flew me out there to San Diego to meet with uh, Professor Popkin. And he had two alternate scenarios, all of which tended to discredit him in the eyes of most of the media. One was about this uh, sort of Manchurian candidate uh, named Luis Castillo, who uh, had been arrested in the Philippines in 67 for plotting to assassinate President Marcos. And, uh, and the other was this guy, Richard uh, Case Nagel, who um, Popkin had, had, had talked to him on the phone, um, had obtained uh, a, a notebook. Uh, Bernard Fensterwald, Jr. was representing Nagel at the time uh, in a case that Nagel had filed to try to get a full disability retirement from the, uh, the Army in the U.S. Court of Claims. And there had been, all right, we should backtrack a little bit now. Who was Nagel? Why is he uh, important? On September 20th, 1963, Richard Nagel walked into a bank in El Paso, Texas, went up to a teller, asked for $100 in American Express traveler's checks, turned away and shot two holes in the, in the ceiling of the bank, walked outside the bank and waited to get himself arrested. This was two months and two days before the assassination of President Kennedy. So Nagel was taken into FBI custody and he told the FBI, why don't you look in the trunk of my car and get those, uh, that machine gun out of there, and there were other things as well. So the FBI, among other paraphernalia, uh, took. They, they seized photographs, they seized two notebooks. One of these notebooks was held for many years um, by the federal government and finally returned in a Freedom of Information Act request to Fensterwald in uh, 1975. Popkin had a copy of this notebook. I took it back to New York where I was living at the time and I started going through it and I realized that there were a number of similarities, not just similarities, but startling ones, to Oswald's notebook that had been taken uh, by the FBI after the assassination. These included the number, phone number, and the address of the Cuban embassy in Mexico City, uh, listings for the Fair Play for Cuba committee, especially a, a branch in Los Angeles that Nagel himself had been connected with. So I got very curious about this guy. Uh, you know, I, There was an address that Professor Popkin had for him, in Manhattan Beach, and I just went and knocked on his door, and uh, with considerable reluctance at the time, he sort of came to the door and peered out, he decided to let me in, and that was the beginning of uh, an odyssey that uh, occupied me for the next, well, 17 years, but almost full-time for two and a half years, and uh, in the course of which I came to know Richard Nagel pretty well.
0: In your opinion, was he authentic?
1: Oh, yeah. I met a lot of people. I interviewed many many uh so-called witnesses to not the assassination itself but people who had knowledge of how it had been set up and so on and and um most of them a number of them anyway i came to either dismiss or or believe that you know they were fudging it you know they were making up some of the details that they told me you can't know that until you start piecing together different people's stories. But of all of them, all the people that I interviewed, and there were dozens uh, back in those days, and I was the first journalist, I think, to interview many of these people. Um, there were two whose whose credibility really held up for me. One of them was Nagel, and the other was Antonio Vecchiana, who was a Cuban exile in Miami. We can talk about him, too, if you'd like.
0: Richard Case, Nagel. Now, a lot of people aren't aware of this, but JFK, the movie by Oliver Stone, has a composite character. Everybody thinks primarily the character is L. Fletcher Prouty, Colonel Prouty, Man X played by Donald Sutherland. It is not just Prouty, it is also Nigel because, yeah. yeah, it's a composite character. What part of the puzzle does Nigel does he fill in, in this whole narrative?
1: Okay, it's a... It's, uh... Relatively long story, but I'll I'll abbreviate it. Uh, Nagel was, in during the 1950s, he was a soldier in the Korean War. He was the youngest soldier promoted to captain during that conflict. Uh, He was wounded several times. He got the Purple Heart. He was a highly decorated uh, young soldier. He then went on into military intelligence in the 1950s and uh, worked closely with a unit called Field Operations Intelligence, FOI, which was a top-secret organization. You couldn't even mention its name without being court-martialed. He was very bright. Uh, he was like Oswald, uh, the product of a broken home. He was he was an orphan kid, uh, grew up uh, in Albany, New York, and and um, so he he uh, in in Japan in 1957 uh, he first encountered Oswald, had what he called a brief but purposeful acquaintance. Was somehow involved in Oswald's defection or so-called defection to to Russia. Um, So he had met him at that point in time, and in 1962, the fall of 62, uh, Nagel was working for the CIA. He worked for the CIA and for military intelligence. And he also had a reputation as someone who might have worked the other side of the street. In other words, that he he may have had connections with uh, the KGB or the GRU. They'd been very disillusioned, it was said, by things that he'd been asked to do when he was in the service, and had therefore had this, this leftist bent. So he was an ideal double agent, I guess you would say. And when he went to uh, Mexico City in the fall of 62 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was put to work, well, he was assigned by the CIA to con- cozy up to or connect with uh, a high-ranking officer in Mexico City of, of Soviet intelligence uh, during this very crucial, you know, terrifying time in our history, the Missile Crisis. And when he left Mexico City, he was given... Uh, Assignment, actually, two assignments by the Soviets. One was to keep an eye on this young guy who had just come back from Russia because the Russians wondered about him and they didn't know what kind of connections he had. Was he unstable? Could he do something that would embarrass them? That was one assignment. And the other was to keep an eye on a group called Alpha 66, members of a group called Alpha 66, a Cuban exile organization closely tied to the CIA that um, was pur- reportedly, according to information the Russians had, uh, Planning an assassination attempt against President Kennedy for later that same year So that was Nagel's double mission. He went back to uh, to he went to Dallas. He made some inquiries about Oswald He was involved at the end of that year in uh, uh, Being aware of and perhaps a part of in a sense So he could he could report back on it a plot to kill President Kennedy at the Orange Bowl in Miami when he addressed uh, the returning Bay of Pigs prisoners during this prisoner exchange. Um, That plot, uh, which was to plant a bomb in the armory uh, near the speaker's podium, did not uh, get past the talking stage. There was another plot in June of 63 in Los Angeles when Kennedy came out to the premiere of the movie PT-109 about his, his wartime years. That also did not come to fruition, although Nagel was privy to it. And at this point in the summer of 63, Oswald is brought into this scenario by these, uh, and Nagel perhaps did it himself. I mean he'd been monitoring Oswald, connecting with him, he was involved in this small conspiracy. Uh, He never admitted bringing Oswald into this plot, but I believe it's quite likely that that he did. Um, Oswald was duped by these two Cuban exiles, uh, who used the code names Angel and Leopoldo, and they supposedly convinced Oswald that they were agents of Castro and that if he would participate in a uh, an assassination attempt at least against Kennedy he'd be welcomed in Cuba as a revolutionary hero now whether Oswald really believed this or not or whether he had his own intelligence connections that he was reporting to we don't know but this is what Nagel knew and Nagel was told by the Russians to either convince Oswald he was being set up or kill him in Mexico City take him out of the picture Rather than do that, and Nagel said the reason is because he'd killed before, he didn't want to do it again, he felt that he could warn the proper authorities in the US that he was already in touch with and they would stop this situation. So he sent a warning letter on September 17th, 1963 to J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, uh, giving him enough information to warrant the arrest of Oswald and these two Cuban exiles. um, Because they were really anti-Castro Cubans who had been working for the CIA for some time. And also, he he contacted his uh, people at the CIA, as high as Desmond Fitzgerald, um, and his case officer, who I now know was a man named Henry heckscher and uh, uh, basically told them what was happening, and then took himself out of the picture. Nagel did by walking into this bank in El Paso and intentionally getting himself placed in custody.
0: Why was he so nervous? Why why did he want to take himself out of the, the whole scenario? Was he afraid he was going to be assassinated himself?
1: I think that may have been part of it. I think he was certainly afraid he was going to be implicated. And he was trying to scuttle this whole situation. It was originally planned not for Dallas, but for Washington, D.C. area at the end of September, 63. So it was coming right up. And, uh, and he made his decision and believed that he would not be held in jail for as long as he was. He ended up being railroaded for four and a half years. Um, one of the reasons that I came to believe that Nagel was extremely credible was I had corroborating evidence. There was a, The arresting officer was a young guy named Jim Bundren, who was named Rookie of the Year in El Paso for his brave act in basically arresting Nagel as he stood on the, uh, on the stairs outside the bank uh, on the street. But uh, I, Bundren was a good man, and I interviewed him twice, and the second time he told me that uh, he was sitting next to Nagel at a preliminary hearing Nagel was charged with attempted bank robbery. It was all over the El Paso papers. It was not. It was a big deal. And uh, on November fourth, which is three weeks before the assassination, he's sitting next to Nagel, and he uh, he looked at Nagel and he said, "You you didn't really try to rob that bank, did you?" Nagel said, well, "You're a pretty smart cop, aren't you?" I said, "No, I, I didn't." He said, "But I'll tell you this much: I wouldn't want to be in Dallas right now." Bundren never forgot that. You can imagine. He knew that Nagel knew that something terrible was going to happen in Dallas. And of course, when it did, Bundren was himself pretty shaken up and didn't talk about it for a long time.
0: Did he think Oswald was being set up as a patsy? Did who think Bundren?
1: Nagel. Oh,
0: oh, yeah. It, yeah, he, for sure. And he saw he it, he, mirrored it, he saw that and he mirrored it to himself as well, I suspect. It,
1: and he tried to get the word out about it during his, uh, his even his preliminary trial. I mean, he, he brought up you know, it was in the El Paso papers, you know, that the FBI is covering this whole thing up, that they were told what uh, what was going to go down. And uh, by this point, interestingly, you asked about Lyndon Johnson before, there was a new judge in Nagel's case. The first judge was gone, and the judge who suddenly came in in January of 1964, before Nagel's first trial, uh, was, was Homer Thornberry, who was a very close friend of Lyndon Johnson's, was in fact in the motorcade uh, that day in, in Dallas. And... Uh, He uh, suddenly, you know, he's a Texas judge, he enters this case and basically does everything he can, you can read this in the court transcripts, to shut down uh, Nagel being able to say anything that he wanted to say about uh, anything besides a so-called attempted bank robbery.
0: Well, I was unaware of that. That's very, very uh, explosive. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Now, did um, Nagel have any proof or any um, photographs or anything of that nature?
1: He did. He did. I I didn't see this photograph. Uh, He told me of a photograph that had been uh, taken by a vendor, a street vendor in Jackson Square Park in New Orleans in September of 63, which he had, it was a Polaroid picture. He had secreted it away in Switzerland in a bank vault and uh, untimely demise uh, that, that he'd arranged for this and a number of other things to be released to the public. One thing that I did see and that is in, uh, in, the, in the photo section of the man who knew too much, is a, a Uniformed Services Identification card for Oswald, uh, which is identical to a card that appeared in the Warren Commission uh, that was discovered, I think, by the... Uh, by, published first by Judy Bonner in her book way, way back about Sheriff Curry. But anyway, it had only appeared one time anywhere. It was the same card, but it had a different face and a different signature. And, and it had the, the overstamp was, was, uh, was on it. So it was a legitimate card that somehow Nagel had obtained probably from Oswald himself and kept among his effects. So this to me was, besides the notebook and, and what Bundren said and, and others that I managed to speak with about him, um, very strong evidence that Nagel was, as far as he was willing to go, not making up a story. And I should add that he was never willing to tell me or anybody else the whole story of what he knew. The other
0: thing I wanted to ask you, when he was incarcerated, I think it was in Spring Hill, is that correct? Springfield. Springfield. Yeah. Okay. I, I apologize. It's the same uh prison that Abraham Bolden was incarcerated in. Now rumor has it that they were in adjoining cells or That's is that's that true.
1: true. Oh yes, my it is god. True. What are the chances fact, of that? Well, you know, I think the authorities were very interested in or I'm talking of authorities meaning CIA, FBI, whoever in finding out what Bolden and Nagel might share with each other, so they intentionally put Bolden in the cell next to him. Um, Bolden remembers this, and uh, to see what they would say. Now they didn't. They did the same thing with a guy named Robert Clayton Buick, who uh, had apparently seen Nagel in, in Mexico at the Hotel Luma. He'd gone on a bank spree. They picked him up. They put him in jail next to Nagel as well. Um, So there was an effort to, you know, try to see what this guy was going to talk about, Were they going to have to kill him, whatever. And then Garrison uh, sent one of his investigators uh, in 1967 to interview uh, Nagel in, in Leavenworth, I believe it was. This was a man named William R. Martin, and Nagel told him about a tape recording that had been made of the plotters talking, including Oswald, himself and these two cubans and one other person who he called raul raul was a cover name um a known cover name for this man henry heckscher whom i've only found out about in recent years who worked closely with david phillips with the cia that's a whole other story but at any rate garrison sent this man in to talk to nagel told him where that nagel told him where, where he could find this tape who had it and uh, for whatever reason, that tape never surfaced. And it turned out that William R. Martin was one of a number of people who had worked uh, for the CIA and had penetrated garrison staff.
0: Son of a gun. These revelations are incredible, Dick. Now, you mentioned Raul, and right away I thought to James Earl Ray. Uh, yes. Same guy?
1: No. No, in fact, a different, a different spelling. This was R-A-U-L, which is the Latin spelling, and I think James Earl Ray's alias was R-A-O-U-L, if I recall.
0: Okay. Is there any evidence that Abraham Bolden and Richard Case Nagel actually spoke when they were in Springfield? I don't
1: recall exactly. I, don't, I think if they did, they probably did, if they were in the adjoining cells, it, w- it would have been uh, innocuous. In other words... I don't know if Nagel knew who he was or vice versa. I, I, and I asked Bolden about it once, and he seemed a little vague on it. So uh, that's about all I remember, all I know.
0: I should also tell folks, Abraham Bolden, first African-American Secret Service agent, handpicked by JFK for White House detail. He was framed for a crime he did not commit. He was incarcerated in Springfield. That's the Reader's Digest. You can find his show also in the www.nightfrightshow.com website uh, Buy his book, An Echo from Daily Plaza. This is a fellow that was set up because he was a whistleblower on Secret Service ineptness after... The assassination he was set up for a crime he did not commit he's still trying to get his name clear after all these years it is a true true tragedy that this has happened to this man this was a guy who was willing to give his life in a heartbeat for the president of the united states and i'd go as far as saying that if he had been on duty that day and he wasn't we wouldn't be having these discussions right now i think the president would have lived without a question okay We had touched. uh, I touched on Raoul, James Earl Ray, uh, which leads me to MK Ultra. You're going to laugh at this. This is how I'm going to get to it. (laughs) It's going to be a tough one. Montreal and MK Ultra, the Allen Memorial Hospital. I come from Montreal, folks. No, I'm not under mind control, although I do have an ex-wife, so maybe I am. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you are. (laughs) Okay. Can we talk a little bit about MK Ultra? and the Allen Memorial a big it's subject
1: ultra. again uh, the yeah. guy who was in charge MK ultra was a, a CIA program dating back to the early 1950s that used um, hypnosis and drugs they were doing all kinds of testing on unwitting suspects subjects, I should say uh, to uh, try to see if these could be uh, used in an intelligence capacity to make somebody do something against their will uh, it was a huge program. Most of the files were destroyed um, in uh, by Richard Helms uh, when he was director of the CIA. So we don't know how far this went, or whether someone like Oswald might have been a part of it. I suspect he could have been when he was when he was young. Um, Allen Memorial Hospital was run by Dr. Ewan Cameron, who was one of the leading contract people. Uh, that would uh, conduct uh, really unspeakable experiments on, on people inside that hospital. You know, everything, sleep deprivation, keeping you up for hours, hypnosis, in, electrodes implanted in you. I mean, it it's ghastly uh, what he was doing, but he was doing this with the full approval of uh, the high-ups in the CIA, including, you know, all the way to Alan Dulles and, and Sidney Gottlieb, who ran the program and who I interviewed before he died uh, in the 1990s. And, uh Well, it was, Godley was actually quite a fascinating figure. Um, He, uh, toward the end of his life, um, he became a Buddhist. And uh, he had a a biodynamic garden, I think, that, uh, you know, or organic garden at any rate. And uh, sort of a a repentant soul in in many ways. um, But was still, I think, uh, not being forthcoming about a lot of things that he'd been involved in.
0: Can we talk about Hartogs as well? I want to tie it into... uh... You know where I want to go with this now.
1: Yeah, Renatus Hartogs uh, was a, uh, he was the guy that the Warren Commission used because he'd interviewed Oswald uh, and spent time with Oswald when Oswald was 13 and was in the youth house in New York, a, a, a truant. Uh, and Hartogs was, was used to, to portray Oswald as a psychopath from a very young age, somebody who would be capable, in Hartogs' view, of uh, doing something like assassinating the president. Well, Hartogs, it turns out, was a part of MKUltra. He was uh, some, an expert in hypnosis. He wrote a book on it that they, he then pretended he never wrote. Um, it, was, it was listed in a resume, and then he said, no, 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 I never I talked to Hartogs once on the phone, very briefly. Um, he's, he's gone now, but uh, yeah, he certainly uh, was somebody I would be very suspicious of in terms of uh, his earlier involvement with Oswald. And also what he later told the Warren Commission.
0: Yeah, he pretty much told the Warren Commission that Oswald was a malcontent at a young age. Now, the connection to Montreal Air folks is Hartog's actually got his psychiatry degree, if I'm not mistaken, from McGill University, which is attached to the Allen Memorial Hospital. The Allen Memorial is a psychiatric hospital to this day looks like Hell hell, I call it. It really is a creepy-looking place, and it's got a really bad vibe to it, but uh, it's a teaching hospital, nonetheless, and uh, so this is where the connection comes. Now, the other connection I mentioned, James Earl Ray, who is the purported assassin of Dr. King, um, he was spotted also in Montreal, not far from that location, actually, where he said he, uh, he met a fellow by the name of Raoul, and this is where that name came from. And if we go to another report in August of 1963, none other than the Harvey Oswald himself was purportedly spotted by a Canadian customs officer, and these are trained guys, um, giving away pamphlets just around the corner, just around the corner, and I'm not kidding folks, you're going to be looking at the map right now from where James Earl Ray first met with Raoul. So Montreal's got this Weird connection to all three assassinations, if you will. Maybe perhaps the reason for that is because it is also the Canadian Center for Organized Crime. All the drugs and everything come in because that's a major port right there. And then they get siphoned down to New York and then from there out to the rest of, the, uh, of, the, of America. So yeah. very interesting background on that. Okay. Dick, can, do you want to talk about environmental issues a little bit?
1: Sure, I have a new book uh, coming out uh, which uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. uh, has done some editing on and and wrote the foreword for and uh, it's called Horsemen of the Apocalypse and it's going to be coming out in the spring and it it profiles uh, who these horsemen are. I mean we're talking about people who actually are now uh, going to be put in charge of some of the key agencies in our country. Uh, One of them is Rex Tillerson who was the uh, CEO of ExxonMobil for many years and has been named Secretary of State by uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Tillerson is uh, probably the main guy that I I profile in the book, along with his predecessor, Lee Raymond, in a long chapter about Exxon's uh, cover-up of what they knew about uh, the changing climate, uh, going way back through their own scientists. Can you tell us
0: a little bit about that?
1: Well, you know, it came out uh, last year through uh, an an investigation by Inside Climate News, uh, an online uh, journal. And in conjunction with Columbia University, and then they went to the Exxon uh, archive and have evidence that uh, they knew back since the late 1980s that uh, global warming, climate change was a very real thing, that it was going to change uh, the dynamic of, uh, of our weather. And and they buried it. In fact, they started funding climate deniers instead, you know, people who would say, oh, we have nothing to worry about. So today we face a situation where, once, of course, we have a climate denier in the White House now, which is really quite scary, and uh, another one, Scott Pruitt, who's the Attorney General of Oklahoma, uh, who's kind of a minion of Harold Hamm, another horseman I, I profile in this book. Harold Hamm was uh, a, a fracker extraordinaire who uh, whose fracking is responsible for a lot of these earthquakes that we've been hearing about in, in Oklahoma, which has finally been admitted by the state. But Scott Pruitt was the Attorney General of, of Oklahoma, uh, and he has just been named uh, to head the EPA, an agency that basically he thinks should be destroyed. Uh, he wants to gut it, uh, gut the, its ability to to do things like the clean power plan that Obama uh, put forward, which regulates emissions from from uh, oil and gas and and uh, power, well, from power plants basically, uh, and and it will do something to alleviate the situation that we're all facing. I mean, we are in an apocalyptic uh, time as far as the uh, results of, of global warming climate change are going to bring to all of us. Uh, it's going to be a whole lot worse than uh, we're seeing right now with the increased uh, the sea level rise we see now, the increasing velocity of tornadoes and hurricanes, so the effect of the ocean, the acidification of the ocean and the coral reefs dying, I mean it's staggering what's going on on our planet and in our country and yet you know we have these uh, climate deniers who are basically going to be running the show it's going to require uh... some real mobilization on the part of the american people uh... to get out there and and make themselves heard that uh... hey you know we gotta do something about this and we've got to move to alternative sources of energy and we got to do it very fast
0: Why does is mr trump insist on saying that it's china it's all propaganda
1: uh... you know who can read mr trump's mind Um uh, China is, of course, along with the United States, the leading emitter of, of greenhouse gases on the planet. China is huge, much bigger than we are. Um, they, have, they took this uh, dubious lead a few years ago in, in uh, what they're putting out. But, you know, China also has moved toward alternative sources of energy uh, in, a, in a pretty big way, solar and wind and other renewables because, for one thing, of the pollution problem that they have. I mean, you know, you can't, I've never been there, but you can't walk through the streets of Beijing without a a, a face mask on a lot of the time. So, uh, you know, for their own reasons, perhaps, but they've, they've gotten more into the fact that uh, the the climate is changing and they got to do something about it. Um, You know, I mean, it's often said that unless China and India come on board with uh, with curtailing their emissions then whatever the US does isn't gonna mean a damn because China and India are so much bigger than we are and, and you know the, there's truth to that but the fact is you know we can't sit back and do nothing and and China and India are making steps and we could also lead by example and help with the with the money that we put into a place like India and the poverty in India you know to lead them toward uh, different kinds of, of energy sources than than they currently have so you know historically uh, the, america has been a a leader that people have looked to for these kinds of things and and now we're looked to as uh, an imperial power and uh you know which in, in intervenes and invades in places places like iraq when there's when there's no need to when it's based on a lie weapons of mass destruction uh you know so we, we we're facing a, a real crisis of uh, soul in this country and, and uh, uh time will tell whether we can get through it but it's going to take a People really waking up and seeing uh, that we are facing crises on multiple fronts, and the environment is is really the biggest we've got, unless somebody just pushes the button and blows everything up.
0: I don't know that the turmoil. You know, the the assassination in Turkey just happened, and uh, the terrorism across the world is just unbelievable. I'd like to be more optimistic than I really feel. How do we? How did we go from JFK to Donald Trump? That's what I want to know from an American. I'm in Uh, Canada. Uh, We've got young Trudeau here, who is a very um, idealist, yeah. if I had to pick a word,
1: Um, very much so. Well, you know, I I honestly believe, and the reason I've been so uh, obsessed with getting the truth out about the Kennedy assassination, is that the country has never been the same since that day, that uh, there really was a coup d'etat in America, uh, an unprecedented thing that happened. And then you you still had other major leaders of that time, like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Robert Kennedy, all of whom were gunned down uh, by—I'm not saying the same people, but by certainly the same forces that did not want to see a change to the status quo in this country. And we had the Vietnam War raging. uh, You know, it it all began then. Uh, What I see as the decline of the country that I was born in, that I I cherish and love, and. We've never really recovered, and it's been more than 50 years, and it's been, you know, a downhill slide uh, ever since. I mean, through the Watergate scandal that ended up, you know, toppling Richard Nixon, uh, to uh, all the different to Reagan coming in, and the Iran-Contra scandal, and all the, you know, the the the, uh, the things that that Reagan did that continued to lead us down this path. And you have George W. Bush and. 9/11 and you know, what the, what was that really all about a lot of questions remain about that that I've looked at in one of my books with Jesse Ventura American conspiracies and uh, thank you and and you know so and now we've got Donald Trump um, we also have a terrified country a terrified populace really that uh, it doesn't really know what's happening anymore you know yes the jobs have gone overseas because we have a multinational uh, global you know world and uh, but do you think Donald Trump's going to bring those jobs back that ain't going to happen and uh, I'm afraid that there's going to be a lot of disillusioned people uh, before too long uh, who are going to realize little by little that they've been fed a lie.
0: We headed for another revolution?
1: I would hope there would be a revolution of sorts, a revolution really of, of the heart. Uh, I don't know that uh, an armed revolution, it might happen. I mean, I, but I, you know, it's, it, for one thing, they got the guns. I mean, you know, the, the the people who believe in, in that climate change is real or that there was, a, you know, a coup to assassinate President Kennedy, you know, are outnumbered. And we're not going to get out there and, and take up weapons and, you know, try to fight this in that way. But, you know, we can certainly fight it with our voices, uh, fight it, as, as in, you know, in, in the press. Um, we don't have as free a press as we used to. It's pretty much controlled by uh, a lot of the big media. But at the same time, there's new outlets Um through the internet that didn't exist before. You have to sort out what's real and what isn't. Uh, But, uh, you know, there are, there could, and I I have sensed since the election, um, a real coming together uh, that wasn't there before. I I think, you know, I certainly wanted Hillary Clinton to win, but I think uh, she represented pretty much status quo, and and things would not, uh, you know, might just go on to decay as they have been. I mean, you know, uh, she would do what she could, but... This is going to cause real upheaval, and this is going to put uh, people in the in the boat where you know you got to decide: Am I going to defend, you know, my my immigrant neighbor who is suddenly going to be deported for all the wrong reasons? Am I going to help that person? Are there going to be sanctuary cities? And, and there are certainly in California now. You know, yeah. Canada, come to Canada. <laughs> A lot of people are going to do that, I, I think. So, have you, know, you talked
0: to Jesse about this? Because I know Jesse was very pro uh, Trump. As a matter of fact, he said that if Trump asked him, he would run for vice president.
1: I think it's a mis—I have not talked to him about it lately. Um, oh. But I think it's a misconception to say that he was pro-Trump. I think he saw Trump. Uh, Ventura is anti the two political parties because he feels that they have really, you know, destroyed the fabric of this country. It's all about money and who pays who, and and he's right. Uh, but you know, I, I don't think so. He he felt that Trump being. The nominee, and then I get—I haven't talked to him since the election, but you know, would would uh, would would destroy the Republican Party, and Ventura really wanted to see that. Uh, he'd like to see the Democratic Party destroyed too, and he'd like to see an independent, uh, you know, form of uh, candidacy emerge that isn't just tied to all these big money interests. So, you know, I, no, Ventura is not a Trump guy per se, and and they know they know each other. Uh, I know that, and uh, you know, but on certain issues, I mean, I know Ventura is very. Uh, passionately, you know, in favor of civil rights and gay rights and all of these things, which uh, he would never in a a million years agree with Trump on.
0: No, I agree. And he reiterated that on the show as well. The Electoral College. Now, I I get what that's about. I understand that completely. It's it's a good idea to spread out... the power among the people right across the country, so it's not centralized in any one area. However, when you're looking at close to three million votes for Hillary that Donald Trump didn't get, which means he didn't have the majority of the will of the people, there's a problem. There's a huge problem, whether you're pro-Hillary or not. uh, Mr. Trump does not represent the vast majority of Americans who voted.
1: No, he doesn't, and, and the Electoral College is in many ways, I think, an antiquated system that has outlived its, its time, and, it, and uh, I'd like to see it replaced myself. Uh, you also, of course, had a problem in some of these swing states with the, with the vote count. Um, I mean, you know, people were denied the right to vote, turned away from the polls. Uh, a lot of votes were lost in, uh, in, in, in uh, Michigan, um, in a couple of key places, I mean, in, in Detroit, and in Flint, where they've suffered a terrible water crisis, I, I doubt if a lot of those people were Trump supporters. But you know, he supposedly won Michigan. I don't know. We'll, if we'll ever know, people like Greg Palast are out there. He's a journalist. He's you know doing everything he can to expose uh, what happened. I know that we've had two elections stolen, and I will use that word before both of them by George W. Bush. The first one by the Supreme Court. You know, uh, take, uh, Al Gore won the popular vote, as people may remember um and i think won that election and then uh i'll, I'll tell a quick story that uh, that i have that has, has been made public by to some degree by mark crispin miller but some years back uh i ran into john Kerry, who ran for president against bush in uh, 2004 i ran into him at a fundraiser i'd met him before uh briefly but i found him alone and i went up to him and i said uh uh, are you, did you happen to see a piece in Rolling Stone that I wrote with Bob, Bobby Kennedy Jr. that uh, basically says the, they, the, they rigged the voting machines and stole the election from you? And he did a double take as if he certainly did not expect this question at a, at a fundraiser, but uh, he suddenly said, well, yeah, I, I did read that article. And uh, I know they stole the election, but by the time uh, that my, my, uh, my attorneys could come up with the, the truth about that, it was too late. And I thought to myself, I walked away from that, I wrote this down in my notebook, I and I thought to myself, wow, so uh, he could just let this happen, and for the sake of not disrupting quote-unquote our democracy, he would uh, just uh, slip it under the rug, and yet admit it, you know, years later? So I, I, I find that very, very troubling, to say the least, and, uh, you know, I think that we had eight years of Bush that really led us to the, well, certainly to the economic crash of 08, and, and course didn't result in people repudiating that world and and electing obama twice but you know i think it, it's it's there part of the darn book.
0: music dick russell's been our guest folks the documentary is called a and camelot i want to thank him so much for coming on the show i really do appreciate this don't, don't be a stranger don't make it another Oh my God, eight years how does that happen how does it happen we're getting christmas older brent really all, right. all right very good to talk with you thank you merry christmas to you my friend I'm Brent Holland from Nightfry. Thank you all for joining us. See you all next time. Inside the Oval Office to Daily Plaza. First-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. NightFrightShow.com.